Being a black filmmaker means that I am very invested in telling stories about my career. But being a black filmmaker also has resulted in a lot of instances where gatekeepers have decided that the only story that I have the capacity to tell is a story about the black community, which is a imposition that's never afforded or required or expected of white filmmakers. Hey everyone, I'm Jenny Butler. And I'm Sky Dylan Robbins. For those of you who have listened to this podcast for a while, you know that it is all about the spirit of learning and what we have to teach each other in this industry. So it's kind of crazy that we haven't had a professor on yet. Wouldn't you say? I, I would. And and we've been wanting to have one on for a long time, which is why this episode is especially exciting. Yeah. And this professor we have on today, his name is Marco Williams. He's a film professor at your alma mater. At my, Yep. At Northwestern in the radio, television, film department. Um, Wait, are you wearing a, a Northwestern shirt right now? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> We're on. She totally uh, is. For, for everyone on, when Jenny and I record our intros together, we also video chat. And I am indeed wearing a Northwestern Wildcats <laughs> t-shirt. And that it was that was not intentional. Um, but anyway, I mean, yes, I, I'm so excited that we're having this incredible professor and, and uh, filmmaker on, but also you know, I so enjoyed my time at the radio, television, film department, RTVF at Northwestern. And so it's nice for um, things to also come full circle in that respect. But Jenny, tell us more about Marco. So our guest today, Marco Williams, he is an incredibly accomplished documentary filmmaker. In addition to being a film professor at Northwestern, his film center around race and American history. And he's won many awards for them, including the Gotham Documentary Achievement Award, uh, the Peabody Award in 2004, and the DuPont Award the same year. And he's also been nominated three times for the Sundance Film Festival Grand Jury Prize. Mm-hmm. And and he's been doing the work and, and having the conversations that um, I feel like America is having on a larger level right now um, his whole life in a sense, and yeah. and making these incredibly, um, you know, eye-opening and insightful documentaries for decades. Like I saw Tell Them We Are Rising, um, which is about historically black colleges and universities. And I found it so, you know, it, it did everything that a documentary should and and moved me and, and um, opened my eyes to so many things that I just didn't think about before, you know. Um, yeah, he's been doing this work for a really long time. And, and so I'm really excited for everyone to hear the conversation that we had. Wonderful. Me too. I haven't heard it yet. I'll wear another Northwestern shirt when I <laughs> listen to it the next time. Go, go cats. I wish I had one, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> um, I'm so excited to hear it. Thank you for doing this, Professor Williams, as well. Yes. Thank you, Professor Williams. And you're listening to Rough Cut. Here we go. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. I hope I can uh, make a valuable contribution. You've been making really powerful award-winning films for decades that really shine a light on kind of uncomfortable issues, some things that people prefer not to talk about. When did you realize the power of filmmaking, the power of documentary, 
to be able to, to awaken people to these issues? Uh, I'd like to answer that in, in two parts. And so I, I'm going to uh, surprise you by starting by saying, I'm not sure any longer that documentary actually has that power mm. to change uh, hearts and minds. Now I say that uh, because uh, a film that I made called The Undocumented, I was very convinced that if I could shine a light on the topic of immigration on the US-Mexico border, having it broadcast on PBS, that it would lead to something transformative uh, with regard to immigration. Well, uh, perhaps it has led to something transformative. We have a president who wishes to build a wall, uh, extend a wall, reinforce a wall, and yet, as everybody along the Mexican-U.S. border will say, you build a 10-foot wall by a 12-foot ladder. So that film did not really achieve the transformation that I had hoped for. So that's just a kind of state that a film alone can't do it. Mm -hmm. A film is a tool, it can be catalytic, um, but it needs, it needs hands, it needs a brain, it needs a heart, it needs guidance, it needs people to, to, uh, to utilize it. Uh, but, so now, I can certainly say that when I got started in filmmaking, I really did believe, and so probably deep down in my heart, I still believe in the power of cinema and the power of documentary and the power of making pictures, as I like to say. And that probably occurred when I was an undergraduate uh, at Harvard. And curiously, it really uh, probably stemmed from my education in fiction filmmaking uh, what I was learning. So I went to school at a time, around the time that the Berlin Wall came down and the proverbial end of the Cold War. And a lot of what was talked about then was the effects of American cinema um, penetrating beyond behind the proverbial Iron Curtain. And I think that soon after that, I also started to really uh, be exposed to what to work for an organization called the Black Filmmaker Foundation and became really acutely aware and the sense of my, my own relationship, my own belonging to the community of uh, independent Black filmmakers whose work was a counter voice to Hollywood. Now we're talking 79, 81, 83. So talking, you know, many decades now, but that's sort of my, my origin. So where I learned or grew to believe in this power was uh, in my years as a college student and my first years of working at the Black Filmmaker Foundation in New York City. Um, one thing I thought was kind of interesting when I was reading the bio on your website is you talked about the need for all creative people to evolve in order to survive. Can you talk a little bit about how your work has changed over your career and why you think that evolution is so important for creative people and for filmmakers? Yes, when I, when I started filmmaking, I, I was very invested in, I still am, but I was very invested in highlighting, as I would state, stories that we don't wish to tell. And some of that was reflected in the African-American community. So 
uh, my second film, In Search of Our Fathers, was uh, a, ultimately a story about the single female raising children without men in the home. At, you know, at a time of taboo, uh, the way the dominant media characterized it, it was a pathology in our community. Uh, so early on, my, my real investment in, in filmmaking was to highlight the issues, potentially look for partners who might utilize it after the fact to, to engage in conversation and hopefully transformation. But I'd say that after I made Two Towns of Jasper, which really started this kind of shift for me from not only highlighting the issues, and in this case, the dynamic between how black and white Americans might see the same situation differently. I then started to think about it was important, and this was my evolution, to, not, to also try to think about making films that might include some consideration of a possible solution, not to not to spell out or for the film to effectively legislate a solution, but to give audiences some things to think about towards resolution. So not just leaving the theater saying, well, I didn't know that, but leaving the theater or turning off the TV, et cetera, um, thinking, I didn't know that, but oh, I hadn't thought about this as a possible uh, consideration for altering that, that problem or, or this or that. And so that's what I meant by, on the one hand, an evolution in my own work. Secondarily, and this is, I think, important as well, and maybe has taken on, has always been important in some sense for me as a, as a black filmmaker. Being a black filmmaker means that I am very invested in telling stories about my community. But being a black filmmaker also has resulted in a lot of instances where gatekeepers have decided that the only story that I have the capacity to tell is a story about the black community, which is a uh, imposition that's never afforded or required or expected of white filmmakers. They can make stories about any community anywhere in the world, but black filmmakers are expected to just stay in our lane. And so some of the evolution as well for me has been to also uh, fight and demand or simply fulfill my own creative impulses, and that is to make any film that I want. So two of the last, two of the last three films that I've made have been about the arts. And one has been, has subtext about race, but really is just about the creative process. That too is an important evolution evolutionary process for me as a, as a filmmaker. Hmm. I have so many follow-up questions to that, but I first want to just go back to Two Towns of Jasper because I thought that the approach you guys took to that film was fascinating and so relevant to the conversation we're having so much now about who is behind the camera. So just for our, a little background for our, our audience, you made that film in 2002 and it's basically about the modern modern day lynching of a black man in Texas in 1998. You made this film with uh, a white director, Whitney Dow, and you guys took an interesting approach in that you divided your film crew. And when you interviewed black people in the town and asked them questions about this, this murder, the interviewers were the black members of your crew. And when you interviewed white people in the town, it was the white members of your crew. And I'm wondering, what you think that that did for the film 
and why you chose to take that approach. Yeah. So, you know, bluntly, the approach we took is that we decided to segregate ourselves. Whitney filmed, he filmed only the white community. I filmed the African-American community. And, and that decision uh, came out of interactions and conversations Whitney and I had with each other as we were discussing ways or, or approaches to making a film about the racially motivated, the lynching, if you will, of James Byrd Jr., um, which occurred in June 1998. And one of the dynamics we found ourselves in as we talked was that our conversations always in, invariably got closer and closer to exposing the racial divide, that, that there was no such thing as an objective looking at or discussion of the events. For example, we might read the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Dallas Morning News as articles about uh, what happened. And they talked about the, the heinous nature of the murder. You read the Amsterdam News, the, the Pittsburgh Defender, you read black newspapers. They talked about a modern day lynching. So white media characterized things in a particular way, black media in a very starkly different way. And Whitney and I, who knew each other prior to uh, making the film, uh, had much in common on the one hand, but what always uh, we butted heads around or we found ourselves contending with was our racial identity. And that led us to realizing that well, I'd say maybe more for Whitney than myself, but at the very least, both of us appreciating the importance of giving voice to the respective communities, if you will, unadulterated. Uh, and my, and, and some of this, you know, I have to really, you know, it is a, you know, Jasper came out in 2002, so it's, it's effectively a generation ago, but it's important to really acknowledge certain key cultural moments that, that preceded it. Rodney King beating um, and the O.J. Simpson trial. And when O.J. was uh, found not guilty, African-Americans throughout the country cheered and white Americans were perplexed. And that was a real kind of uh, reminder, a clarity of these two communities. Don't, don't, you know, we're, we may live in the same America, but we experience the America differently. So, so just the last thing you know that I often find helps to clarify this decision to segregate for the filming we did integrate in the editing um, is that if uh, if women speak to one another about feminine hygiene, they share experience about that. If if they speak to a man, they have to explain how it works how to use a tampon, et cetera, et cetera. So in this way, we were, we were thinking the same thing, that if, if I'm speaking to the black community, there's no explaining what it feels like to be black. If Whitney is speaking to the white community, there's no explaining. So this was the, the, the reason for uh, taking this approach. Hmm. Did you feel like also that the people who were being interviewed would feel more comfortable to say what they really felt? if they felt like they were talking to someone who had the same background as them, maybe spoke their language, 
that was my first thought when I read about your approach to this was like people would feel more at ease. Well, sorry to interrupt. There certainly that was, you know, understood in some sense that we wanted people to be able to feel that they could speak candidly and share what they felt. But we were also, as I said, trying to amplify the cultural awareness that black and white Americans see the world differently. And I think that that has been brought to bear uh, in the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement that we are experiencing today, where so many different white people, whether it's corporations, et cetera, are kind of acknowledging something that has been going on for centuries, right? And and so, yes, comfort to, to speak um, openly and clearly, but to illuminate the the way in which black and white Americans see the same situation often differently. Mm. I want to go back to what you touched on earlier about um, telling stories about your own community. Um, I know that uh, in discussions at VC, um, the group that this podcast is a part of, um, there's been a lot of, and at film festivals that I've gone to, there's been a lot of discussion of like, are you the right person to tell this film? And even like, I've interviewed a lot of grant funders on here and people who are gatekeepers, and they say that they're really looking to, to give a grant or give a festival submission to someone who is telling stories from their community. Can you talk about why you would make an argument for or against that? Um, and why you feel like I mean, I don't know if you have an opinion on this, but why you feel like it's such a part of the discussion right now? There's a lot to unpack there, so uh, if you'll bear with me. Um, I'll start from this framework. I'm a professor. I'm a professor of filmmaking. And in my first uh, year MFA course, I introduced this very question of whose story and who gets to tell it. I think that's critical. Uh, yes, the conversation is now, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's reaching not quite a crescendo, but it's, it's occurring. You're hearing this more, but wait a second. It's been, we've been saying this, we people of color uh, from marginalized communities have been saying this forever. I would say I probably have been saying this since the In Search of Our Fathers, 1991. 92, 93, you know, Cinema de Real in Paris, France, part of this kind of conversation. Uh, uh, 2001 at Hot Docs in the Pitch Forum, looking around the room, and only all the gatekeepers in the room were all white. Where were the, you know, and what, you know, so who gets to decide? So, uh, so yes, I think that it's really, really, really profoundly important for this question to be asked um, for makers, particularly non, for makers who come from privileged and dominant communities to think about why they are picking a particular story to tell, what is their relationship to that community, do they, are they seeing it from the outside, is that the int intentionality, what does it mean to be an outsider, are you perpetuating a certain paradigm, uh, I think gatekeepers, you know, hallelujah, if it's really true, and I hope that it is, that they, that funders and festivals are really being much more uh, conscious in this way and not simply paying lip service to it. 
Uh, I really think that, you know, you can't just suddenly, you know, trot in your person of color, for, you know, to be one of the programmers and to be a truly effectively transforming uh, this, this paradigm. And yet, I just want to say, and yet, because I think it's really critical. Creative people should be able to make any kind of story or and create anything they want. However, then they have to at least be able to understand their positionality and their relationship to that. And I'll give one example and then let you do a follow-up. When I did, I was part of a, a series for the History Channel called 10 Days That Unexpectedly Changed America. And I was given the quote, black story, the civil rights movement. And Bori and I resent that. But in the end, I'm very glad that I was because I got to speak to my heroes. But but I wanted to do Elvis Presley. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so there's my point. Now, look, Elvis Presley is not about just being white. He, he appropriated, I mean, to this conversation, he appropriated black music and exploited it and, and became quite successful. So I just want to, you know, I always believe that it's the important question is, Whose story? Who gets to tell it? And why are you why are you electing to tell it as a mm-hmm. filmmaker, as the funder? Why are you picking white people to tell stories about people not in their communities? Why a trans? Why a, a, a cisgendered person telling a film about trans community? Why an able-bodied about the able community? And I know this firsthand. I made a film about the U.S.-Mexico border, spent time in Mexico. And before making that film, I spent a great deal of time speaking to Latinx filmmakers, friends and otherwise, sitting on panels, having a discussion about it to, to, to better understand my relationship to that community and, in effect, get permission from that community to make that film. Mm. Um, I just want to go back to something you said earlier about film festivals. Do you feel, I mean, you've been in this industry in so many different capacities for decades as a professor, as a filmmaker. Do you feel like there's been a shift in the way that film festivals and grant funders consider who they're going to give funding to or, or submit in terms of like who's telling the story? Do you think, do you, do you feel like that's become more of a factor? I, I do feel it's becoming more of a factor that there there is a there is a visible shift in festivals and even in funding of the of who is being supported and or included. And I would say for some festivals, this started earlier than others. But as I've commented, I think some what they have done is their methodology is to bring in guest curators. All right, so that's good. So now the guest curators create a sidebar, listen to the language, a sidebar that, that amplifies difference. But the main programmer is still, let's say, white male or white female. Mm-hmm. And that still sort of creates a, you know, a cast over the essence of it. I was at the New Orleans Film Festival last fall, and I thought, wow, you know, I had conversations with their artistic director about this very question. And it was very clear that there was a greater consciousness uh, going on at that festival. And he explained to me how the conversations amongst their team were very heated and charged uh, because it made some people uncomfortable and potentially was going to threaten some people in terms of their job potential. Funders, let me just say this. So here's, 
this is where the, the line is not so clear yet to me. And I think this is probably true for many others. The grant apparatus, you can probably see it more, a sort of more uh, equity going on. But the grants are always small money. So, you know, the, so we're scrapping for, and I, I'd say probably less me as a veteran filmmaker, but scrapping for little bits of money at a time. And then, but then look at, you know, the types of stories that certain film, certain entities and Netflix, Hulu, et cetera, are funding and who's getting that. And so that's the question. And I'm not, I can't provide you with statistics at hand, but I think that's where the measurement really has to happen is at the highest level, at the largest capacity of, of support, who's getting that support and what stories are they telling? It's mm. not good enough to say they are the most experienced because they are black and brown and Asian, native, queer, experienced filmmakers out there who have a track record. It is changing. And there is an awakening. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if it sustains or whether this is a fad until the next societal crisis occurs. Mm. I want to talk about this cultural and societal moment that we're in with the murder of George Floyd and the protests that have ensued the last couple of months. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about the role of journalists and filmmakers in this moment. I know a lot of white filmmakers and video journalists have been kind of unsure of whether to get involved and how to get involved or whether to just step aside. What do you wish to see from white filmmakers or video journalists in this moment? Uh, I, I would wish to see, you know, in response to the eruption of, um, of an awakening in, in these United States and globally, but really concentrated here in the United States, I, I think that there is a, a, a role and a place for varying uh, entities. And I'll, and I'll get to the answer to your question, but I'll just use me, for example. I'm a... I'm a person of a certain age. Dave Chappelle said this very well in his, his uh, piece. I, I probably belong in the back seat in a lot of ways, not in the driver's seat for some aspects of protest and um, challenge. My lane is the work that I make. Mm. I got to concentrate on the work that I'm doing that, that has been about this challenge to uh, racial inequity, anti-blackness, racism. So there's a place for me. So I use this as a way to say that there's a there's a place as well for white people, white journalists, white filmmakers. And I'm not so sure it is rushing to the protests, camera in hand, and filming what is going on. I, you know, my wish would be, and this is the this was the benefit of the collaboration I made with Whitney Dow. Uh, not only with uh, Two Towns of Jasper, we made a second film, I Sit Where I Want. We have executive produced each other's uh, uh, work, our ongoing kind of, you know, uh, intellectual collaboration. Is the, the value and the need for white people to challenge and reflect on whiteness. So there's probably an abundance of stories for white people to tell about white people's uncertainty about where they belong in this, this moment. 
their reticence, their uncomfortableness, their fear, their desire, you know, their place, uh, their, their, their come, coming to terms with their privilege. All of that is, is largely part of this uh, national conversation. And, and, and that's where I think white filmmakers, white journalists ought to be you know, embedding themselves. They are in a much better position than a non-white filmmaker to fully engage that. Honestly, bring us back to Two Towns of Jasper. You know, those are hard conversations. I, I've had them or, or attempted to have them with colleagues at Northwestern. We, you know, the, the muted or the silence of my white colleagues when it comes time to talk about this is is deafening. <laughs> it's, 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 it's startling and, and then when I poke or challenge, they say, well, I'm not really sure. I think it's my job to step back. No, it's not your job to step back. It's your job to step forward and confront and to contend and and to reflect on your whiteness. That mm -hmm. space for white journalists, white filmmakers, reflect on whiteness. That's a really interesting answer. It's something I haven't even heard in this conversation, but that makes a lot of sense. The reason I feel strongly about this is that then there has the potential to be the development of collaboration or allyship. Or to, you know, it's not to say that the work that Whitney and I have done together is not with, that, with its own flaws or challenges, but one of the distinct things that it has is that whenever we collaborate together, it is 50-50, 50-50. So that means work has to be done. No decision in the editing room in 2000 Jasper could be made by one person or the other without both people agreeing. So somebody might have had to compromise, had to yield something. But more importantly, it meant that we discussed everything and under, got to have a better sense of where each other was coming from. So I just want to point out that it's not, it's not to say that there's not space for collaboration or allyship, but you can't suddenly say, you know, Black Lives Matter, I'm your ally. Well, really? Mm -hmm. Really? You know, and what do you do when you see three black guys walking down the street if you're a white person? You know, what are you doing? So there's a lot of work and a lot of unpacking that needs to be done in the white community. I strongly believe that, you know, the black community is doing this. We're confronting the oppression. We're challenging it. It's time for white people to also confront and challenge their oppression and privilege. Mm. It's interesting you, what you said about you and Whitney um, in the editing room for Two Towns with Jasper. I mean, I also read that Whitney came from a similar background to you, that he also grew up in the Northeast. Did you feel like even though you were so similar kind of on paper, that you had just being of different different races, you had like really different perspectives on what should be in the film? Uh well, yeah, I think that, you know, the, it's a nice part of the narrative that we came from similar backgrounds. That meant that we both went to Ivy League colleges. Uh, we both grew up in the Northeast. I mean, I, we both went to boarding schools. I went to school with his sister. I lived in his parents' house uh, when I was first taking a leave of absence from Harvard. So there was a lot of space where we, you know, engaged each other as in a familiarity. But, 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 but. You know, Whitney would join me strongly in the recognition that 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 was his sort of revelation that despite that we were profoundly different, 
And yes, the you know one of the great moments in our collaboration in terms of of revelation uh, for Whitney and you know allowance for me to feel like there's that part of this creative space is going to be the dialogue we're having is that in an early sample we made maybe ten minutes long the first person to speak was the sheriff. Yeah who's white, and I think the last person to speak was the district attorney, who's white, in 10 minutes. And I said to Whitney, can't, you know, here's this film about black and white, you can't have the first and last voice be a white person. And mm -hmm. his initial response was, but those are really the two best moments. <laughs> and that's what white people tend to, until they're awakened to their racial privilege and their racial identity, will always qualify things as this is the best, as opposed to understanding that best has got a lot of mechanisms for defining. So we had a long, long conversation about that. And, you know, I would say thereafter, yeah, we, you know, Whitney might have challenged me if there was something, you know, a, a sequence that began with a black person, ended with a black person. And I couldn't say, well, that was best. Well, how do we define best? So. Uh, yeah, so that really became uh, critical to the work that I did with him. And and I think that, that if there is to be collaboration between black and white or between groups that are different, there has to be equity. And one person cannot still be benefiting from his or her privilege, whether it be race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, et cetera. Hmm. I don't want to dig too deep into, you know, this one film that you've done, but I just find that really interesting, that conversation about, you know, these two sound bites being the best. What did you say to make him change his thinking on that? You can't quote me on this because it was, you know, so long ago that, that I... I don't exactly remember because in the end, even though it was a demarcation, uh, there were so many more evolutionary moments in, in the work that he gradually understood that best is not defined by, well, how do we define best? How do we define good? Is from whose perspective of that? I mean, we could talk about this is, you know, who defined the canon of literature in, in Western universities? Why didn't it for, you know, decades include, you know, black writers or Latinx writers or many more women writers? Who defined that? So who is qualifying what is best? Mm. And that, that became a lot, a lot of the nature of that conversation is to point out to them that even if Billy Rolls made sense to start which he starts the movie, makes sense. He's the first person who, outside of the murderers, arrived at the, at the scene. But for the sample, and I even think the way the film ends, I think the film ends with a black person. Since this is a, a film that's kind of in dialogue or in reflection, it has to do that. If, it, if it's framed literally with a white and a white, that becomes the articulation of the film's intentionality. And I'll offer this, you know, I mean, it's not to throw people on the bus, but it's, you know, there's an important narrative that we went through that I think bears some lessons. We had a meeting, and I won't say who the, the funder uh, or the broadcaster was. We had a meeting with a broadcaster, 
early on to pitch the film. They are, you know, in the course of it, you know, Whitney, I think, was the person who said, this is problematic because um, we looked around, there were five people at the table besides us, all of them were white. Whitney, you know, this is evolutionary to that first moment, said to them, this is a this is a problem for us. Our relationship, Marco Whitney's relationship is 50-50. Here we have a potential partner, a broadcaster, that's all white people. That's not gonna cut it. The next meeting we had, we joked, it seemed like they, they found a secretary who was African-American and had her in the meeting. It was very clear to us that that was not going to be a partnership that we, mm. because they didn't uh, reflect the values that we were working very hard to create. What are the discussions about diversity in media and about this cultural moment that we're in? What are those like in, in your classroom? What are like the next generation of documentary filmmakers saying and thinking about this? I know that's a very broad question, but. Now I didn't teach in the spring, so I, I have not had collective conversations, but I do believe that not for all, but for many of the students who are now enrolling in uh, our courses our program, these are critical conversations. And I think there's some who have been disrupted because they've not engaged this, not chosen to have, have asserted their privilege in the framework of aesthetics, of, of principally aesthetics, as though aesthetics defines, and it's, I have to say, and I'm going to be very blunt, it is more often than not that white people take the positionality of aesthetics over content. When, when, when they are dealing with something that really, when they can be challenged about why are you making that story, they will talk. Can you, can you explain that a little bit more? Sure, that, that, that you know, often form becomes you know, a reasoning. Well, I, you know, it's back to my, my comment about best. Well, I really chose to do this work in this capacity because it, it was my way of, of, of showing something or expressing something. But when asked to say, but wait a second, what about your positionality? What about the ethics of doing that? They always sort of say, well, you know, I, I, I'm not really concerned with, you know, giving name to the people because this film is not really about that. So mm -hmm. that's a privilege to kind of think that a film is not about who's in front of the camera and whatever their circumstance is. I have found that more often than not, it's quite filmmakers in the, in the context of filmmaking who always sort of fail to see the actuality on the other side of the lens and they only see their opportunity to create something, i.e. In fact, they don't even see their privilege in doing that. I hope I've been mm. clearer. That makes sense to me. Yeah, like they're, they're not really thinking, they're kind of thinking about it as like, oh, I'm making this piece of art. They're not thinking, oh, this real people in front of the camera and this will have an impact on them. And and yeah, and what's your position? And, and, and mm -hmm. any kind of decision making, which we understand is core to documentary production, i.e. no objectivity, there are all these choices. And to pretend that you've not made a choice or don't stand behind that form prevails over content 
is something that tends to be the purview of those who are privileged. Mm. Um, do you do you feel like you learn you still learn things from your students or learn things from teaching? Like, is there a, a symbiotic relationship between actually making films and then and teaching the art of filmmaking? Uh, I've been very fortunate to be a professor now for twenty five years. I did not set out to be a professor. I stumbled into it. And the, the key component to me of uh, teaching has always been my wish to share my passion and enthusiasm for the power of filmmaking. And what I get in return is to be challenged in the classroom, to watch people evolve, and in some instances to be lucky to continue to have relationships with uh, filmmakers initially after they, or film students initially after they graduate, graduate maybe helping them to make their first film and then to watch them you know, blossom and uh, I learn from them. So yeah, I couldn't teach if I weren't receiving something back from the students. Perhaps selfishly, it is partly leaving a legacy, but partly uh, receiving a legacy, i.e. they are going to continue to be, if not filmmakers, contributors to the world in some capacity. And when I do touch base with them after they've graduated, I'm receiving something that they are building and creating. And in the classroom, I certainly get uh, challenged. And sometimes the greatest challenge is just stepping back. I have an organizing friend who reminds me that in, the, in her work, it's to learn to, when one is quiet, to step forward. And when one has been speaking too much, to step back. And sometimes as a teacher, I have to, my students remind me it's time to step back and for them to to engage with each other. Mm, that's interesting. Well, thank you so much, Marco, for doing this. These are difficult topics to talk about, but they're very important, and I think our audience will really appreciate to hear from you. Thank you. You as well. Take care, Jim. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler. Sky Dylan Robbins is our co-producer. George Itzak is our booking producer. Hansdale Sue does our audio mix. And our original music is by Zach Wright. And Rough Cut is a part of the Video Consortium, which is a creative community of the world's top emerging nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're scattered all around the globe, and we have chapters in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Milan, Paris, and with many more to come. If you want to join and become a member, check us out at videoconsortium.com. And if you want to learn more about Rough Cut, go to roughcutpodcast.com. Visit us on Instagram at roughcutpodcast and go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, subscribe and rate our show.